Hello and welcome to Civil War Weekly, a podcast that answers the question, what happened this week in the American Civil War? I'm your host, Tim Patrick, and this is episode 94, January 2nd to January 8th, 1863. First, may I say welcome to 1863 and 2023, everyone. Good to see you here in the new year. Last week, we fought the first day of the Battle of Stones River. This week, we are going to conclude that battle and also talk about an event that was going on the same day as the first day in Parker's Crossroads. Let's keep in mind that the Emancipation Proclamation has gone into effect, which is going to tie into our breakdown after Murfreesboro. Just a quick note, we do have Patreon content. I did mention that the second half of our two-parter on the live, if you will, live uh, review of Gods and Generals, that's going to be out there on the Patreon feed. So if you want to hear the second half of that review and kind of worked out, maybe not perfectly, but we got into at least halfway through the Fredericksburg part of that movie before we cut it off, and then we'll have another half to go with that. So you will see that. And once again, the Patreon goes toward the general upkeep of the show, and it is greatly appreciated. So thank you all very much for the support. So the first thing I actually want to do today before we really get into the narrative is I want to describe the battlefield of Stones River a little bit better. I think one of my New Year's resolutions when it comes to this podcast is maybe break down exactly how the battlefields look. You know, I get so excited with these a lot of the time where I just sort of assume that you know what it looks like, right? And that's not necessarily a great way to describe it here in an audio form. Um, And I find myself also, if you want to look behind the curtain here, I find myself also not necessarily being able to write it out where it's coherent. So I'm going to try to describe for you here um, just by looking at a map, and maybe that will be uh, better for the show. So if, uh, if you have an opinion on that, you're more than welcome to uh, email the, the email cwweeklypod at gmail.com and uh, let me know uh, if you think that's better. Um, so let's take a look at Murfreesboro. Now, if you're looking at the battlefield of Murfreesboro, we have the town of Murfreesboro. And in the battlefield itself, if we're looking at a map, the Nashville Turnpike is going to be kind of a diagonal, like northwesternly pike that runs into the city. Stones River kind of meanders to the west of the town, right? And also intersecting through the Nashville Turnpike and then running uh, past Murfreesboro is the Nashville and Chattanooga Railroad. That's also running a little bit to the north and the west, and it's cutting diagonally through our battlefield, very close to the river, right? We have the Wilkinson Turnpike that is running in a relatively east-west that kind of dissects our battlefield here. We talked about the Wilkinson Turnpike and how that is 
important, right? Um, and it is a landmark on the battlefield here. All right, we have two Fords. One of the Fords is going to be branching off from the Nashville Turnpike. And we talked about that Ford. That was what potentially the Confederates could have used to get across the river. There's another Ford that is closer to where the railroad and the turnpike briefly intersect, right, relatively. It's very close. That's around where we had Hell's Half Acre. We talked about that, the sort of the tip of the Union defensive line, right? Now, for today, we're going to be talking about Stones River, which is on the Union left flank, right? And we had Breckenridge on that side of the river, so we'll be spending our time over there with Breckenridge attacking Union forces that are on uh, both sides of the river here. So we will get into that. So on December 31st, remember we had Braxton Bragg and William Stark Rosecrans each attempt to exploit the left flank of their enemy, but the Confederates were first to win that race. Bragg concluded the day with the Union Army still intact with a new line along the Nashville Turnpike. But the question for both sides lay in what to do next. Rosecrans reportedly held a council of war in which George Thomas stated that there was no better place to die than right there. This account might be fictional, although it is a nice dramatic story. There are other accounts that have Rosecrans being the decision maker. Whatever the actual events, the army of the Cumberland would not move. What exactly did the Confederates think, though? Braxton Bragg was positive about the results from the 31st. With the Union Army surprised and having sustained heavy casualties, they would most likely quit the field, he thought. January 1st passed with very little action. No renewed Confederate assault, Bragg content with allowing for his foe to withdraw. In fact, there were some reports of wagons heading back toward Nashville, perhaps the Yankees securing their supplies before moving back that way. Even with no renewed attacks, there was still discomfort amongst the ranks. Joe Wheeler had done a good job raiding the Federal supply lines before the battle, so many soldiers were without. They fared better than some of the wounded, who were forced to spend the night on the cold battlefield. January 1st did see one major event. Rosecrans would send Crittenton's 3rd Division back across Stones River to secure the ford and the high ground beyond. Now this division was Van Cleve's, but Samuel Beatty had taken command after Van Cleve was wounded the previous day. With the Yankees deciding they would stay and fight, Bragg would seek to find a way in which he could renew his offensive. One good option was to find high ground in which they could perhaps enfilade the Union line around Round Forest. Maybe they could convince a withdrawal out of Rosie after all, but to the Confederate surprise, there were already blue-clad soldiers on the high ground. Holding that ground could also see the Northerners turn artillery on the Confederates. Bragg would make the controversial decision to order an assault to take this high ground, and to lead it would be Breckenridge. Now, I have seen many opinions on this decision from Bragg. 
Breckenridge was from Kentucky and Bragg may have been trying to punish him and the Orphan Brigade for the failure of the invasion of their home state. It is well documented that the commanding general was not fond of Kentuckians. Obviously, Bragg had not had any of their fine bourbon, which I would imagine maybe would have swayed his opinion, though. I don't know. Um, Likewise, he didn't like Tennesseans either, so it's like, who does he actually like, right? So it's an interesting thought. We're going to see here later in the episode that he's going to add maybe a few more individuals to the list of folks that he doesn't like, so stay tuned for that. Likewise, two brigades had called off their assaults on Hazen's position on the 31st. Perhaps they were being punished for that as well. But I am of the opinion that it was an entirely necessary attack if the army was to remain. After the battle, there's going to be a lot of pressure on Bragg, and his decisions especially in retreating after the battle. This move is not one that would set up a withdrawal. Its success would determine the next move of the Confederate forces. Now, it was ill-advised given what the Union Army was able to put together in defense, and lack of support was key, as we will soon see. So, who's really at fault here? Bragg doesn't do anything on January 1st. He thinks that Rosecrans is going to march away, and this is sort of this, this shift. As we see later in the war, there's more maybe resolve to fight out these battles than it is to just give up the ground. Like, probably in 1861, uh, with the armies the way they were, if there had been this surprise attack and Rosecrans had been punched in the mouth, then maybe he would have withdrawn, right? So we see this kind of shift in terms of how these armies are becoming more veteran and they're becoming uh, more confident on the battlefield, even with setbacks. The other thing I want to throw out there is that this is kind of like a chess game and and I'm not a very good chess player at all, but you know, it's like I move my piece here, Rosecrans does, he, he takes that high ground and then it kind of forces Bragg's hand. He has to do something if he just runs away without giving battle, that's going to seem bad, right? And it's going to be a morale buster to the army. Now we're going to see it doesn't work out anyway for him, so it's kind of unfortunate how it rolls out here for Breckenridge's division. Breckenridge would attack Beatty with his brigade space shorter than was usual for Civil War units. They would be 150 yards apart as opposed to 300 Roger Hansen would lead the way, followed by Palmer, whose brigade technically belonged to Gideon Pello, arriving before the assault. Preston Smith and Randall Gibson, commanding for the wounded Adams, would join the attack as well. Wharton's cavalry would support the flanks, and additional artillery was assigned to occupy the high ground once the infantry had taken the position. Crucially, Breckenridge would order his own artillery to advance with his infantry. We're actually going to see that tactic. Not executed efficiently, but that's going to be the idea at uh, Gettysburg on the third day. Beatty would wish for additional support on his side of the river. Gross's brigade would be shifted, and Negley's division placed in a spot where he could also jump into the action. John Mendenhall, the chief of artillery for John Crittenden, 
would also have a pretty large role to play on January 2nd. Now Bragg is going to order the attack with only one hour left of daylight. The entire assault was estimated to have only been around 45 minutes. The Orphan Brigade led the way, moving toward the Union position. Roger Hansen will be mortally wounded in the charge, a shell fragment severing his femoral artery. Despite the loss of their commander, the Orphan Brigade, along with their supports, were able to crest the high ground the enemy occupied and take it from their Union foes. It should be noted that Gideon Pello hid behind a tree during the attack rather than face the northern line. While the Confederate assault was briefly successful, Mendenhall's artillery would see an end to that. He had gathered almost 50 pieces to pound the rebels, forcing them off their hard-gained ground. Union infantry would follow up on the barrage, Negley's men and even Hazen's fording the river in a pursuit of the retreating foe. Some of the rebel artillery who had advanced with the infantry was captured as a result. Wharton's dismounted cavalry, along with some rebel artillery, would dissuade any further press by the northerners. The Orphan Brigade had lost nearly a third of its number in the attack, darkness ending the action. With the conclusion of the attack by Breckenridge, the Battle of Stones River was effectively over. The Union Army had lost 12,906 in casualties, compared to the 11,739 for the Confederates. Stones River is the highest percentage of loss for the numbers engaged for any battle during the war. A fact that might surprise you. Despite the heavy subtractions, Rosecrans was able to quickly switch up those numbers by replacing all the men he had lost. If you remember, his full force was closer to 80,000 men than it was the 45,000 he had brought to Murfreesboro. Confederate losses, on the other hand, would not be replaced. Bragg would make the decision to withdraw the next day. Confederate forces would move south toward Tullahoma, demoralized at having seemingly gained on the battlefield, but then gave up the field. Rosecrans, on the other hand, would not pursue. There were heavy losses that he needed to address. His army also needed to resupply, following not only Wheeler's successful action, but also another raid by John Hunt Morgan, which would disrupt his supply lines. The significance of the battle to Lincoln is evident. Winter of 1862 had not gone well in his effort to try to gain some footing for the Emancipation Proclamation to stand on. Fredericksburg and Chickasaw Bayou had been setbacks, as well as Galveston, which we'll talk about next week. The Union needed a victory, and while it was not pretty, it definitely was a victory that was sorely needed. Even after a subpar performance at Chickamauga, Lincoln would write to Rosecrans about the great service he had done at Stones River. If we think about it right, like what happens if Rosecrans decides to withdraw on the first instead of staying where he is that's a crucial decision uh, and one that obviously Lincoln is going to appreciate it just would have been another setback in the winter and even though there were times in the spring and the summer that the Union Army had all the momentum in, in a lot of the theaters 
this would have definitely have shifted everything back to full momentum for the Confederacy. And if we think about how the Northern press would have run with this, right, it, it might not have ended up very advantageous for Lincoln. Now, on the flip side of that, would Bragg have actually followed up on his success here? Yeah, probably not, right? But at least I don't think so. Um, but still, right? Sometimes it's all about the kind of press that you're getting, and this negative press would not have been good for the Lincoln administration. One of the other big fallouts from Stones River actually combined with Perryville and was the unraveling of the Confederate High Command in the West. Braxton Bragg had conferred with his generals before retreating. Almost all were pro-continuing the fight. After the battle, Bragg would do a big no-no. Seeing his slandering in the Confederate press, with many calls for his removal by the way, he would throw his subordinate officers under the bus. This is very clearly a glimpse into the mindset of the fragile Bragg. We need to remember that these are people too, and they have real feelings, so obviously getting called out and folks are asking you to be fired, right? That's probably not good for your psyche. Probably wouldn't be good for any of us today even, right? But I have at least a portion of his address that I'm going to read here, and you can decide whether you think this was probably a good thing to roll out or uh, you know, maybe not so good. Finding myself assailed in private and public by the press, in private circles by officers and citizens, for the movement from Murfreesboro, which was resisted by me for some time after advised by my corps and division commanders, and only adopted after hearing of the enemy's reinforcements by large numbers from Kentucky, it becomes necessary for me to save my fair name, if I cannot stop the deluge of abuse, which will destroy my usefulness and demoralize this army. It has come to my knowledge that many of these accusations and insinuations are from staff officers of my generals, who persistently assert that the movement was made against the opinion and advice of their chiefs, and while the enemy was in full retreat. False or true, the soldiers have no means of judging me rightly or getting the facts, and the effect on them will be the same, a loss of confidence, and a consequent demoralization of this whole army. It is only through my generals that I can establish the facts as they exist. Unanimous as you were in councils and verbally advising a retrograde movement, I cannot doubt that you will cheerfully attest the same in writing. I desire that you will consult your subordinate commanders and be candid with me. I have always endeavored to prove myself with you. If I have misunderstood your advice and acted against your opinions, let me know it, and in justice to yourself. If, on the contrary, I am the victim of unjust accusations, say so, and unite with me in staying the malignant slanders being propagated by men who have felt the sting of discipline. General Kirby Smith has been called to Richmond, it is supposed, with a view to supersede me. I shall retire without a regret if I find I have lost the good opinion of my generals upon whom I have ever relied as upon a foundation of rock. Your early attention is most desirable and is urgently solicited. Now, we take a look at this and there's a couple things in here that, you know, we, we probably think are sort of negative, right? Like, he's, he's sort of calling out his subordinates, which isn't good. 
and this letter was sent to them, right? Um, he's definitely calling out Kirby Smith. And to be fair, you know, we had our criticisms of Kirby Smith before, but, you know, now he's he's really calling him out here. He's just saying his name. Um, and, you know, you could also argue that he's sort of grasping at straws here, right? Like, he's saying it's, it's a demoralization to the Army about all this negative press that he's getting. Now, where do you think that negative press is coming from? It's probably coming from the fact that they thought that Perryville was a victory. They thought that Stones River was a victory. And now you retreated from both those places instead of continuing the campaign, right? And there are reasons for both, right? You know, we just mentioned that Rosecrans is going to replace his numbers. We mentioned that it's not really a great place to fight a battle. Stones River was, you know, we talked about how Perryville the entire Union Army is not engaged. It's really only a, a part of it. So there are reasons why he should retreat, right? Now, here we also have a response, and we can kind of get the gist of what the subordinate officers think here. This is going to be from Hardy. I have the honor to acknowledge the receipt of your note of yesterday, in which, after informing me of the assaults to which you are subjected, you invoke a response in regard to the propriety of the recent retreat from Murfreesboro, and request me to consult my subordinate commanders in reference to the topics in which you refer. You will readily appreciate the delicate character of the inquiries you institute, but I feel, under the circumstances, that it is my duty to reply with the candor you solicit, not only from personal respect to yourself, but from the magnitude of the public interest involved. In reference to the retreat, you state that the movement from Murfreesboro was resisted by you for some time, after advised by your corps and division commanders. No mention of retreat was made until early in the morning on the 3rd of January, when Lieutenant Richmond, a journal Polk staff, read me the journal's note to you, and informed me of your verbal reply. I told him under the circumstances nothing could be done then, about 10 o'clock the same day, I met you personally at your quarters in compliance with your request, Lieutenant General Polk being present. You informed me that the papers of General McCook had been captured, and from the strength of his corps, 18,000, it appeared that the enemy was stronger than you had supposed. That General Wheeler reported he was receiving heavy reinforcements, and, after informing us of these facts, suggested the necessity of retreat and asked my opinion as to its propriety. Having heard your statements and views, I fully concurred and it was decided to retreat. No preparation was made by me or my division commanders to retreat, which was resisted by you for some time, and I recall your attention to the fact. Afterward, in the evening about 7 o'clock, we met to arrange details, and retreat being still deemed advisable, and having been partially executed, I concurred in an immediate movement in view of the heavy losses we had sustained and the condition of the troops. He continues on, and this is the big part here. He talks about how Bragg mentioned General Smith in Richmond. I have conferred with Major General Breckinridge and Major General Claiborne in regard to this matter, and I feel that frankness compels me to say that the general officers, whose judgment you have invoked, are unanimous in the opinion that a change in command of this army is necessary. In this opinion, I concur. I feel assured that this opinion is considerably formed, and with the highest respect for the purity of your motives, your energy, and your personal character, but they are convinced, as you must feel, that the peril of the country is superior to all personal considerations. I mean, whoa, right? You know, you read that, and then it's 
it's like he calls him out. Hardy would have kept the receipts as, as you would say, right? He says, this is what happened. This is what you said. This is how it played out. You know, he has times in there, right? So he's really kind of giving it back to Bragg and to say in writing, yeah, I think you should be fired too. What, what a letter, right? And this is, this is showing how Bragg doesn't get along with his subordinates. They really don't like him. He doesn't like them. So it's, it's very interesting to see. So Bragg is going to go out of his way to continue to contradict his subordinates. Bishop Polk was an intimate of Jefferson Davis, so he too would write to the Confederate president about the current state of affairs, namely that Bragg had lost confidence of the officers and the army in general. Remember that Polk had actually been given this tasker uh, a little bit earlier. We talked about how he was supposed to report back, so he's reporting back essentially the same thing that Hardy is saying. Joseph Johnson, who was the theater commander, would arrive in the winter and review the reports. While there were rumblings that Johnson would take over, this would not happen. Johnson, who I'm going to be pretty critical of in 1863, most likely did not want that to happen. He didn't want to take over. No charges were filed against Bragg, but this conduct in the Kentucky campaign was never brought into question. No, Bragg would be in command as the army sat in southern Tennessee in early 1863. We need to backtrack just a little bit and talk about what Forrest has been up to. Remember we talked about how Forrest had combined with Earl Van Dorn to raid and thus frustrate Grant's plan to capture Vicksburg. Now Forrest, before setting off once again to raid the Union lines in early December, had requested supplies to be shifted to his command. This did not happen, and remember some of his more experienced regiments had been given to Wheeler, including the 8th Texas. Bragg did have some supplies he could have given to Forrest. Remember, he was ready to arm 15,000 in Kentucky, but Bragg did not consider Forrest and his men regular soldiers. In one of the more amusing instances of Forrest's career, artilleryman Morton was assigned to his command. Forrest, though, did not like being interfered with and told the young lieutenant, he would have to get permission from Wheeler, who was some 50 miles away. Morton rode there and back in order to make sure he would be properly accounted for under Forrest. It's going to be a good thing that Forrest lets him come on and that Morton takes this long ride there and back because he's going to do good service as an artillery officer under Forrest. It is on this raid that Forrest is going to acquire a Dragoon Saber. This weapon he had sharpened on both sides, which shows you the type of warrior he was. Usually the sabers only really only have one sharpened side, it's the killing edge, but Forrest is going to be using both sides as the killing edge, so um, he is definitely a character. Rosecrans and Grant were aware that Forrest would be moving against the rail line that connected Tennessee with Mississippi. His crossing of the Tennessee River was dealt with aggressively by Grant, he wanted forces sent to stop the rebel cavalrymen, including gunboats along the river. Forrest would be skirmishing with enemy cavalry in West Tennessee on December 17th. Now he's dealing mostly with green troops, though, and was able to overwhelm any veterans. Lieutenant Morton, who was without cannon before the skirmishing, would have some captured cannon afterward. 
Forrest would start to use his reputation, combined with bluffing, to make his forces look bigger. In a raid on Jackson, he was able to gather enough weapons to replace outdated flintlocks. Bridges were burned, and lines of track torn up. Enough reinforcements were arriving, though, from Grant to make things hard on the Confederates, though. Grenville Dodge was on his way, but fake couriers were sent to throw him off the scent. Forrest even used drums and dismounted his men to march, making it appear as if he had infantry and cavalry in his command. After successful raiding, Forrest made his way to Parker's Crossroads in late December. There, he would be pursued by Federal Cavalry under Jeremiah Sullivan. A column from Colonel Cyrus Dunham and another under John Fuller were converging in an effort to trap Forrest. An unfortunate assumption was that Forrest was trying to escape. It did not occur that the aggressive commander was going to live up to his reputation once again and turn on the two forces piecemeal. Forrest would dismount two of his regiments to delay the Union troops while he deployed, setting up his artillery to face those of Dunham, who were taking cover behind a fence line. Forrest was able to get the better of the artillery duel, and after besting the Union pieces, they advanced aggressively to further pepper the Union lines. This might have also been because Forrest wanted to preserve his men for further action on Fuller, but it is very rare to see artillery used in such a manner unsupported. We talk about artillery and how it's used during the war. It's very rarely used in an offensive capacity. You know, we talked about how Breckenridge is going to move up his artillery, and we're going to see the same idea at Pickett's Charge, but usually there are infantry supports with them, right? But Forrest is going to essentially have his artillery alone, and they're going to be advancing uh, and getting closer in order to be more effective against the Union troops. So that's actually a tactic that they probably don't teach that at West Point, right? So it is definitely a Forrest original. A unit of Confederates assaulted the Union flank, but were repulsed. Like a boa constrictor, the rebels were slowly working their way around the line and started to encircle Dunham. Part of the rebel contingent captured the supply train for the Federals. A flag of truce temporarily brought the action to a close. Forrest had split Dunham's command during the fighting and was able to start accepting surrenders, a fact unbeknownst to Dunham, who was very much against surrendering. Dunham would actually deny having raised the flag, but Forrest wished to demand a full surrender. It was during this parlay that Fuller suddenly appeared on the rear of the Confederate line. Forrest, for once, was caught in the surprise, maybe one of the only instances of the war in which this occurs. Fuller was ready to take all the horses he could as well as Forrest's prize artillery. A misconception of orders had actually relocated the Confederates' task with watching out for Fuller, meaning the Federals were able to slip past. Forrest was not simply going to let the Yankees get the better of him, though. He kept his men in line and famously barked that they would charge them both ways. His aggressive nature would save five of his guns as he charged against the oncoming Blues. Dunham's force may not have participated much in the second act of Parker's Crossroads. The Confederates were allowed to escape. It was a hard shot at Forrest. He had lost maybe upwards of 300 men captured, including supplies and some cannon. 
Union forces lost 27 killed and 140 wounded. Sullivan did not press the advantage, though, as he thought Forrest was ready to counterattack. Forrest was able to come out of the raid with more recruits, though, going 300 miles in 17 days, capturing supplies, and disrupting the Union war effort. Rosecrans was unable to gain any reinforcements while this raid was occurring. So, in that regard, tactically, worked out for Forrest. Let's pause right there. We have opened the new year with the conclusion of the Battle of Stones River. While it was never really paradise, we can say that there is trouble brewing amongst the general officers in the main Confederate Army of the West. Nathan Bedford Forrest continues to grow his legend with the Battle of Parker's Crossroads. Next week, we need to cover a good handful of events. We should backtrack with the raid on Van Buren in Arkansas, as well as the action at Galveston on New Year's Day. We need to also fight the Battle of Arkansas Post and the Second Battle of Springfield in Hartville in Missouri. If you like what you hear, please make sure to leave a review. Posted in the description should be a link to the website, as well as Patreon and Venmo information. Support for the general upkeep of the show is greatly appreciated. Feedback is welcome. Any kind of questions, comments, concerns, the email is cwweeklypod at gmail.com. Thank you all so much for listening, and have a great week.